Aloha y buenos dias from Baja Sur, Mexico. We've had a few great conversations on the show in the last few weeks, and we definitely have some more exciting conversations coming up. So make sure you subscribe and stay tuned for the latest episodes. Well, it's June 2022 already, and there have been a few races that have came and went to include the Texas Water Safari and the Yukon River Quest. Congratulations to all who paddled and endured their own personal experiences. We all know that there is a lot of time and a lot of planning spent preparing for these ultra-endurance races, and having to grab a DNF before reaching the finish line is a really hard pill to swallow. But it happens to all of us at some point, for several different reasons. I've been there when I had to pull out of the California River Quest due to a few poor decisions early on in the race. That definitely could have been avoided. But we paddle, we learn, and we paddle again. Whether it's an issue with gear, equipment, nutrition, or hydration, there are so many moving parts that can, well, fall apart in a matter of seconds. Taking that DNF and turning it from a did not finish into a did not fail. Today, we're going to be talking to my friend Brian Sheridan, an accomplished sailor and licensed USCG engineer about his experience at both the 2020 and 2022 Everglades Challenge, a 300 nautical mile race that begins in Fort DeSoto Park, Mullet Key in Tampa Bay, Florida, and finishes up at Key Largo in the Florida Keys. The Everglades Challenge is part of the Water Tribe organization, which encourages the development of boats, equipment, skills, and human athletic performance for safe and efficient coastal cruising with minimal human impact. Check them out online at www.watertribe.com. The Everglades Challenge has three checkpoints in which there are cutoff times to definitely stress about. Checkpoint one is situated at mile 62, Checkpoint 2 at mile 174, checkpoint 3 at 273, and of course the finish line at mile 300 and Key Largo. Racers can enter in five different classes. Class 1, Expedition Kayaks and Canoes. Class 2, Racing Kayaks, Canoes and Rowing Hulls. Class 3, Sailing Kayaks and Canoes. Class 4, monohull sailboats and small craft, and Class 5, multi-hull sailboats and small craft. This race is a mix of wild and calm waters, so racers must choose their craft wisely, because that choice could make or break them at any given section. There are a lot of navigation challenges as well, so being prepared is key. So let's get started and talk story with Brian Sheridan and hear all about his experiences with the Everglades Challenge. Hope you guys enjoy. All right. Hey, Brian, how are you doing? Hey, good. Good to talk, Jennifer. Yeah, thanks for joining me today. You have a couple of really interesting stories about the Everglades Challenge. So before we get started on that, um, I want to let you know I really enjoyed uh, reading your stories. I know you did an account of the 2020 and the 2022 two race and it was really interesting and exciting to read so 
That's why I wanted to bring you on this podcast so that you could share your ups and downs and all arounds of that race. So before we start, I kind of want to just give the listeners an idea of who you are, where you're from, where you're living, what you do for a living, and how and where you train and all that kind of stuff. So um, just to start out, where are you from and where do you live at the moment? I'm from uh, Dallas, Texas. And I currently live in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I uh, left Texas uh, to join uh, the crew of a private yacht where I uh, was a chief engineer for many years. Uh, Sailed all over the world. And then um, about eight years ago, uh, got married, stopped sailing, had kids, uh, and now am a project engineer for a yacht repair company in Fort Lauderdale. Awesome. That's a big difference from Texas to Florida. Super cool. So you usually paddle what then? What is your craft of choice? So I have a uh, Clipper C1, which is a Kevlar decked canoe, uh, 18 foot six long with a rudder. Uh, I mostly paddle with a single blade, but I do carry a double blade and paddle with it sometimes. But really it's a... uh, Use for a re-entry device. Uh, I mean, the primary reason I carry a double blade is a re-entry device. And then mostly I paddle in the canals and channels. Uh, you know, there's a, plenty of water in South Florida. So um, there's uh, a loop all the way around Fort Lauderdale that I paddle a lot. And then I do a lot of paddling in the Everglades uh, and the, not so much offshore uh, just because of the big waves, but lots of inland paddling. Okay, cool. So the conditions where you paddle are kind of a mix between crazy and calm, depending on how far you go out or where, what area you're in. Yeah, definitely. And the tides, tides and wind are a big factor. Okay. Yeah. That's important to know uh, because I know, you know, people on different bodies of water, like for me, uh, now that I live in Mexico, tides, they're not as important, but they do matter. Like I can definitely notice when there's a slack tide going on. Um, and then, of course, the wind picks up in the bay. Um, I'm in a, in a little bay of the Sea of Cortez. So, so yeah, I know, I, I know how that feels. Uh, do you usually train with a group or are you training by yourself or what does that look like? I have uh, only trained with other people uh, just a handful of times. Uh, I didn't. Prior to the uh, this most recent running of the EC, I didn't know anybody who lived in my area who did the race or paddled long distance. Um, also, because I have uh, two young girls, I tend to paddle at really weird hours compared to most people. Uh, you know, so I would often leave at you know two thirty three in the morning uh, and be done paddling by the girl. You know, by the time the girls got out of bed, uh, so. And I would do that for a couple of reasons. One for the heat, two, uh, two because oftentimes the tides worked out that way. But yeah, I didn't. I, I don't do much group paddling at all for for a bunch of reasons, but mostly because I paddle at weird times of day. <laughs> yeah, I can totally relate to that. Um, being you know a, a single parent of a of a young boy when I was training a lot more. When I I mean I'm 36 now, but um, when I was training for you know, some of these bigger races, I was doing multiple ones, I could only get out at three, four in the morning, like you said, and train. 
before, you know, my son got up and I had to take him to school. So that kind of training for all you out there that don't know, it takes a lot of dedication, like training in general is dedication, but when you got to wake up at three, four in the morning, it's like an extra little dedication there. So kudos to you. That is awesome. And I also train solo as well. Um, not really because my reasoning, not because I have to, um, down here. Yes, I do have to, cause I don't know anyone in the paddling scene quite yet. And there's not a big paddling scene out here, but mostly because I just like to train solo and because of the odd hours, of course, no one wants to get up at three and four in the morning with me. So it's all good. Yeah. All right. Cool. So the Evergreen challenge too, is, you know, by definition, a solo self-supported event. You know, if you happen to have people with you, that's a bonus and a really good thing, but you can't count on that. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a really good point. So with that being said, let's get right into it. So for the 2020 Everglades Challenge, what class were you racing in? What was your setup? And why why did you even decide to do this race in the first place? So uh, I uh, raced sailboats at the Texas Maritime Academy in Galveston, Texas, where I uh, went to uh, engineering school. And so I had heard about the race as a like in a sailing magazine article or something like that in, in college, I, I knew about, I knew of it and kind of coveted the race, you know, from there on. Uh, and in 2018, I found out that the race is going to take place uh, on my 40th birthday. So I thought that would be a, a cool way to spend your 40th birthday and um, was, was pretty confident that I could sail the race and the, the you know the crazy crazy people that paddle the race uh to me seemed like you know a uh, if you're gonna make a major life change and and you know refocus and rededicate yourself to something you may as well do it to the, the hardest most difficult uh you know rung and then uh the other part too is that i kind of analyzed the finishing rates so because you can go back in the what everglades challenge or like the water tribe website and analyze who won and how many people in each class won um and with sailboats it, if the weather's good that you know a high percentage of them finish but if the weather's not good and the you know you have a, a southerly wind and other factors there's a huge percentage of sailboats that don't finish so i wanted the highest probability to finish so the the boat that I chose was a, a, a class one with sail. So that's a uh, a recreational canoe or kayak with no more than a 12 square foot sail. Because um, those boats, in me looking at the finish results, had one of the highest percentage uh, completion rates of any of the other classes. So yeah, I I uh, raced in a Kevlar decked canoe with a sail, 12 square meters. It's a Falcon sail is the brand. And, uh, you know, I chose it because it was going to be hard and because I thought they had a high percentage, a high probability of finishing. Well, that's smart. Um, I have to say you did your research. That's, that's really smart. I think uh, the reason why a lot of people don't end up finishing these ultra races is because they didn't do their research. So I think that is very smart that you did that. Um, and then just to be clear, 
So the race was in the, your first attempt was in 2020, correct? Correct. So and I in trained, 2019. I for, yeah. I trained from, you know, half of 18, all of 19. Uh, and you know, the race starts in early 20 in March, March in 2020. Okay, great. I went from like couch to Everglades challenge. So <laughs> that's great. So, Good for you. Not a, not a, not a paddler had canoed as a kid, you know, was a boy scout had some paddling experience, but like, you know, not a lot. So, but I had sailed a lot. So I had, you know, sort of the maritime background. And so I knew navigation, I knew tides, I knew weather. Um, I knew sailing. Um, so I didn't have to learn that part, but I had to learn to become a paddler. And that took time. I mean, my first training run was like uh, two miles or something. Um, two know, miles? And, yeah, two miles. And uh, <laughs> I was awesome. proud of that, you know? So, you know, you don't just <laughs> uh, step off the couch and, and attempt an ever, or at least I wasn't going to step off the couch and attempt an Everglades challenge. So, I mean, I, I had a solid 18 months of preparation. Cool. Okay. Yeah, that's important. So, in early 2019, uh, you decide to go to the start, right? So, you're going to the start to, to the race that you're right. going to do in 2020. But in 2019, you go to the start hoping to shake some hands against and get some information about the race. And you meet a guy named Joe Wildlife. So tell us about Joe Wildlife. That is quite a name, like Joe Exotic, but I'm assuming this guy wasn't <laughs> Taming Tigers. So yeah. what? what's the deal yeah. with the Joe Wildlife? Is this his real so, name or what is up? <laughs> yeah. yeah, so the, the group that organizes the Everglades Challenge is called the Water Tribe. They organize several races across the nation or three three specifically races across the nation. Um, and to join the any race you need to join the water tribe so the guy who organizes the race is called the you know his and you take like a, what they call a tribe name or an alias um so the guy who the the head organizer of all the races is called the chief and then everybody takes all these uh you know strange names so uh his real name is not joe wildlife but that is his his tribe name and is you know he's a i believe a biologist or a you know, so, some sort of, uh, uh, you know, conservation-based scientist, um, and which is why he chose the name Joe Wildlife. But I think, I believe he lives in Missouri um, and works for maybe the Parks Department, but he, he works, you know, in like wildlife conservation. Anyways, uh, I just saw his boat and liked his boat. Um, you know, he had a, uh, and the boat that I ended up choosing for the race, you know, it had a, a, a Falcon sail on it that, you know, f there's a lot of different sails for canoes and kayaks that are oddly shaped and don't look anything like race sailboat sails, uh, except for the Falcon sail. Falcon sail is a, you know, a standard looking mast with a standard looking boom and a, you know, a race boat shaped sail with a batten and a vang and, you know, all things that you'd see on a racing sailboat sail set up only in miniature on the deck of a canoe and uh, i just walked up to him and was like you know hey man i like your boat tell me you know tell me about what's going on and he was getting ready for the race the next day and uh you know we ended up exchanging phone numbers and he ended up helping me out massively uh you know sold me 
old GPSs with, you know, preloaded with uh, multiple routes down the race course and, you know, all sorts of pre-marked campsites and just an unbelievable volume of information that uh, was incredibly helpful. He also helped me a lot with modifying the boat once I bought it, you know, putting in a different seat and, you know, little, just little things to modify the boat to make it, you know, race ready. That's great. So, yeah. so scoping really, really, really paid off for you. Absolutely. No, I mean, there's uh, no, no way to replace uh, on race course scouting. Absolutely. And especially and, with every challenge. I mean, a river race is a little different, you know, there's not exactly turns, but. Yeah. And I think a lot of people that do these ultra endurance races, you know, some of us aren't, aren't fortunate enough to live close to the race that we want to do. Like I know for the Alabama 650, I, I just didn't have the funds or the time, you know, cause I was living on Oahu at the time. I couldn't, you know, fly to Alabama and scope out the race. So I tried to get as much information as I could online and through, you know, I mean, the, it was only the second year the race had, had happened. So uh, I remember Sally O'Donnell shared with me what she could, but again, too, she was also competing the same year I was, so she didn't want to spill the beans too much. <laughs> so the more information you can get, the better. That's awesome for you. So heading to the start now, 2020, you said there was a delayed start from the 7 a.m. start. Right. So the rules of the, the rules of the race state that if the Coast Guard issues a, um, small craft advisory that they will either delay or do what's called a plan B start. The uh, primary reason for this is the, within a mile of the starting beach, you cross a navigable channel in a major port, the port of Tampa with, you know, thousand foot uh, container ships and, and, and uh, oil tankers running through a very narrow body of water that is very shallow on, you know, so it's a cut channel that's skinny. They can't stop and they can't even slow down because they'll lose steerage. So if you flip or have a problem in the channel, you're going to get run over. So, which is super dangerous. So to make yeah. that danger, they allow, you know, you can start anywhere on the race course uh, north of checkpoint one, which is about a 60 mile range. So, uh, you know, I know ships, I know waves and uh, this particular morning there was, you know, windblown waves hitting the bow of tankers so hard that the waves, you know, smashed the bow and then rolled all the way up over the bow of the vessel 35 feet in the air. So it was well worth the plan B, which we took. So everybody, most of the paddle vessels uh, packed up. Uh, and then drove south and then relaunched. I, I launched just on the south side of uh, Tampa Bay um, at uh, Anna Maria Island, which is, you know, on the, the, the southern end of Tampa. I basically skipped eight miles or so of, of race course and started in Anna Maria. But that wasn't until noon. And I also Okay, had so you started up. at noon. Right, right. So I had a, but I guess my point is, had we started at 7 a.m., you would be well past Anna Maria Island in a normal year mm -hmm. uh, by, you know, after five hours of, of, of racing. So while I did take a plan B in uh, normal uh, starting math, you know, if you're averaging three, three and a half miles an hour at minimum, 
you should be across Tampa Bay no later than 9.30 a.m. Whereas with a plan B, because it took so much time for me to pack all my stuff, drive around the bay, unpack all my stuff, launch the boat, you know, I was, you know, at the start gun, a solid three hours behind schedule. All right, got it. So sometime in the beginning of that day one, you run into another paddler that gave you some sort of Rambo pep talk. <laughs> they gave right. you this super confidence and you recall being ready to headbutt someone, which I can totally relate to that. Um, and you paddle into Dawn while telling yourself, I'm going to put on my, put, put my jacket back on after the next section. And this just keeps going on and on and on and on. So, so yeah. ex explain that. Yeah. So I was, uh, you know, it was nighttime. It was cool. It was windy. I was working hard. And, you know, we, anybody who's done even a one mile jog knows the game you play with yourself about, oh, you know, I'll, I'll stop at the next light post. I'll stop at the next corner. You know, you just play this mental game of forcing yourself to go farther than you should um, by setting uh, arbitrary finish lines, reaching those finish lines, and then setting a new one. Uh, and I was doing that only with cold. Uh, I knew I was cold. I knew I should put on more clothes, but my, you know, waterproof spray top, I had to, you know, stop, take off my life jacket, put my spray top on, mm -hmm. put my life jacket back on, get back in my boat. And I was just trying to keep going. And I played that game way too long. And, uh, you know, my hands were cold. So I put on gloves like an idiot, as opposed to what I should have done is put on a hat. Um, you know, a few hours later, I go to change over my map uh, and my hands are like lobster claws. You know, I uh, beginning stages hypothermia that clicks in my head like, oh, you know, I have loss of dexterity. Like I'm cold. I need to go to shore right now. <laughs> so um, anyways, I made to shore. Uh, make, you know, and then I continue to do more dumb stuff. So I'm, you know, basically wearing you know, spandex from the waist down. I have a, a rash guard on top and a, a PFD. That's really my only source of insulation on my upper body. Yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty scary. I know that, you know, a false sense of security sort of with the, with the keep telling yourself, okay, the next section, the next section, I'm fine. I'm fine. And the thing about hypothermia for all you listeners out there is that it is really, really hard to reverse once you start getting the symptoms. Um, it's a lot easier to prevent it. But when you're kind of in the zone and you're, you know, when you're paddling, you, you almost don't realize how cold you are. It's really hard to, to accept the fact that, yeah, there are things that in the long run, if I would just get out of my boat and take a minute to get warm or put these things on, it's going to help you in the long run. So um, I would say the one thing obviously is with the jacket situation, definitely, definitely want to get a jacket that fits over your um, personal flotation device, because if it doesn't, then you run into the problem where you have to take your life jacket off and then put the jacket on and put it back on. And if, you know, if it's wild seas out there, it's the stability is, it's insane. Right. So any little movement could cause you to flip and which could further the hypothermia. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's 
definitely you made a good choice to stop, but maybe a little too late. Right. So that was your, I guess your rookie mistake. Number one, you called it, right? Yes. Well, and I would also uh, add to your comment about, uh, and a hat. Yes, you know, definitely a hat. Percentage, massive percentage of your heat is lost to your head. You know, seven out of 10 times, if you're cold and you put a good insulated dry hat on, you'll probably be okay. Really, really good advice. And of course, also, it does depend on, you know, different body types. I know for me, my fingers and my toes are freakishly long, <laughs> so they get cold really, really easily. So for me, gloves and um, NRS boundary socks with wool socks underneath that always really helps me stay warm or get warm if I'm cold. But uh, yeah, it's hypothermia is no joke. I mean, I've had to pull out of a race because of it before. And the thing about the Everglades challenge is, like you said earlier, there's no support boat following you. So what what was your kind of backup plan for your lost tide charts? You know, you had, you said you lost your tide charts. Um, right. and then I know in your story, you said you couldn't even get into your boat to access the warm clothes because you were starting to lose your dexterity. So what, what did you do at this point? You're on shore, you're freezing cold. You can't get to your warm clothes. What was the plan? So, um, the chief, the guy who organizes the race has these, series of articles uh that are required reading to enter the race and you like literally have to check off that you've read and understood these articles one of them is hypothermia recovery drill um and you're heavily encouraged to practice these uh skills by the you know by the water tribe and so you know luckily i'm shaking i can't get my boat open to get to my warm clothes uh but luckily there's a i had a snickers just sitting in my cockpit so I just grabbed the Snickers, bite through the wrapper, probably ate, you know, a third of the wrapper, you know, chewed up the Snickers as fast as I could and started doing jumping jacks until I warmed up enough to stop shaking, um, which was, you know, a good 15 minutes probably. Um, and then, you know, sort of recovered enough to where I could, you know, open my, open my boat, get my stuff out, get warm, get dry, uh, get camp set up. Um, but it, it probably took me a good two hours of, you know, shivering in my tent, uh, even after I ate a hot meal to, uh, actually get to sleep. So this is probably, you know, by this time, two, two thirty, three in the morning, maybe. And, uh, as you say, it takes a long time to recover from hypothermia, which I now know. And then probably at. 4:30 in the morning I had some you know uh, vagrant I don't know some poor poor person uh who who had a probably a substance use problem knock on my tent looking for dust I still don't know what dust is uh <laughs> after like you know an hour and a half of sleep maybe maybe two um and then uh basically was so enraged by being woken up in the middle of the night I couldn't get back to sleep rolled around for a couple hours, you know, trying to figure out what dust was. And then, you know, got up at, got up at six, packed up my stuff and left. Wow. That's a crazy story. Uh, first of all, I, I just picture you biting into the Snickers and eating half the wrapper. I feel like that should be a Snickers commercial, like right there. <laughs> it, that's awesome. <laughs> Nobody um, wants I might to see try a to... man in spandex doing jumping jacks. <laughs> 
Oh my gosh, that is so funny. Uh, yeah, the thing about the the drug addicts, or you know, to to, to kindly put it, um, addicts in general, is that it it's really scary. And I know I'm always afraid in the Alabama 650, um, especially being a female and I'm alone. And you know, you have your support crew, but sometimes, you know, you get to a point where you can't plan where you're going to stop because something goes wrong. Like for you, it was the hypothermia issue. So you're stopping somewhere where you didn't expect to stop. And the random docks, um, they get scary in the Alabama 650, the further South you get, um, it just becomes more of a rural area. And I, I feel really afraid and uneasy that sometimes, I mean, I, I just keep on pushing through the night through, sheer delirium because I I'm so afraid to stop. And we've been warned about it too, that, you know, don't stop at this park or dock because there's a lot of, uh, you know, activity, illegal activity down there. So, I mean, it's, it's definitely a scary thing and something that people should think about. Um, so yeah, thanks for sharing that experience. That's, I would be terrified. Plus you you were probably, like you said, super just grumpy and irritated like man I just want to sleep and I don't know what this mm. dust is that you're looking for yeah. so yeah that's a that's a really creepy experience uh so you make it to checkpoint one around 8 45 a.m ish I think you said yeah. and then you're entering uh Charlotte Harbor around 11 30 a.m and even with a warning of a small craft advisory which uh what is a small craft advisory for people that don't know like how strong does the wind need to be for that to be an issue or uh, for I it to believe, be an advisory. I, yeah, I believe, I do not know, uh, but I believe it is sustained uh, sustained 25 knots or higher. Uh, and then with no, with no math on gusts. So, uh, you know, if you have sustained 25, you can easily see 35 to 40, 40 knot gusts. Um, but I believe it's 25. It could be 20 though. I, I honestly don't know, but it's a, it's a, a uh, finite velocity of wind threshold established by the, um, I believe it's the National Weather Service that issues them, but they're enforced by the Coast Guard. Okay, got it. So because of this small craft advisory, you decide to go west of Pine Island, which is the wildest part of the bay, and you should have tucked up the north coast and headed straight east towards the mainland. Uh, you said the, yeah. I believe in your story, you said the wind was blowing about 25 plus. So that makes sense. A small craft advisory and you were taking seas right to the beam. Uh, and you were, you know, it was scary because you're away from shore, which I've experienced this before. I mean, being away from shore is such an insecurity. Uh, I've had this experience again in the Alabama 650 where it's like, oh shoot, I should have done this, but now I'm here. So now what? Uh, you did mention that yeah. your Falcon sail performed flawlessly. Um, I don't know anything about sailing, so. Uh, well, yeah. So I mean, when did I just, you start to notice? I took the lazy man's course. Go ahead. I should have. Uh, okay. I should have taken the hard road early. I should have paddled up wind for two hours or so and gone on the east side of Pine Island, you know, between mainland Florida and Pine Island. Instead, I took the lazy man's course and decided to sail across Sarasota Bay, you know, on a, uh, and then go west of Pine Island, between Pine Island and Sarasota, I mean, excuse me, uh, Sanibel. 
And then my thinking was that because the bay between Pine Island and Sanibel is way wider than the bay between mainland Florida and uh, Pine Island. Uh, so I was thinking I'd have more room to sail, more ability to sail, and I could, you know, rest up from my sleepless night. Um, but literally, as soon as I got across Sarasota Bay, the wind shifted enough so that now I have all of, you know, the entire length of Pine Island to paddle upwind in a larger, more open to the wind bay. And while in Charlotte Harbor, I got owned many times by big waves. Um, I had a high brace, which is, um, you know, the canoeists out there know what that is. So you basically, you, you're in a situation where a wave is going to hit you, you will roll. You can either, you know, sit there and take it, or you lean into the wave and paddle up into the wave to prevent you from rolling sideways. I had to do that several times, had a lot of water in my boat, didn't realize I had a lot of water in my boat, you know, get, get to the, um, the bay between Sarasota, or I mean, uh, Pine Island and uh, Sanibel, boats full of water, have to put my sail down, can't can't make any speed, can't figure out why. Uh, eventually, the other the other side of this is Sanibel Island is like an ultra wealthy, uh, you know, very private, very exclusive island. So there's a nowhere to camp on Sanibel. <laughs> And if you do camp, like you may get a couple hours of sleep before some private security firm kindly asks you to leave. Um, so I decided to camp early, get to shore, you know, pop out of my boat. And normally the boat jumps out of the, you know, jumps out of the water like any boat would with a 300 pound man getting out of it. And it didn't even <laughs> budge. Open up the back. I got, you know, 50, 60 extra gallons of salt water in the back of my boat. Um, which is why I couldn't make any speed and, you know, rookie mistake number two of, uh, you know, navigational error followed by excessive uh, physical exertion for no real reason and no real benefit, just, you know, lack of experience. Got it. Yeah, that's uh, that's not good uh, for all you out there that have ever had, you know, even just one, two gallons of water in your boat is a nightmare. I can't imagine that excessive amount uh the picture that you took you had loaded a picture on the island was it snowing or is it did it just look like that was it frosty or no that's that's uh beautiful talcum powder white florida sand oh my gosh it i mean i wish everyone could see this we'll have to share your your blog uh, wherever you you've uploaded these photos at after the or in the notes yep. of the podcast, but it, it, it straight looks like winter time. And I'm thinking, Oh my God. <laughs> no, no, that is, that is sand so fine. It, it like creaks when you walk on it like snow, but it's uh, this Island specifically. Well, I was on, I camped on North Captiva, but there's a whole chain of islands that, that have this beautiful talcum powder, perfectly white, ultra fine sand, uh, which is why it's such an affluent and sought after community. It's because the beaches are, you know, unbelievably beautiful. Uh, but yeah, wow. no, that's just beautiful sand. Wow. I'm shocked. That's, that's awesome. So you end up spending the night on this Island, correct? And then you wake up at 5am mm -hmm. and then 
portage to the other side and you launch right. into the Gulf yeah. of Mexico? So the, yeah, the islands are narrow. I mean, you're talking about uh, 60 yards wide from bay to ocean side. And because there's a super duper strong east wind, which on the beach is an offshore breeze, you know, I walked out to the bay side and it was a, you know, angry torrent of, you know, rolling whitewater. And then on the lee side, on the, the Gulf of Mexico side, you know, it was flat like a pool table with, uh, you know, just the ever so slight pitter patter of wind across the surface of the, you know, lake looking Gulf of Mexico. So I come up with a bright idea of sail offshore. Um, and for the first 20 miles until I got to the end of Sanibel, that worked great. But unfortunately, Sanibel is probably like four and a half, five miles offshore. And when I got to the end of Sanibel, I now have a five mile fetch, which is like the, the distance that the wind blows over the water, which governs how big the waves are. And, you know, 20 ish. Uh, knots out of the east so i now have to paddle upwind up wave uh to cross from sanibel over to the mainland uh and it was just terrible i was you know it's a it's a big tourist spot and and uh also a very popular shelling spot so there's lots of people on the beach you know with buckets picking up shells and you know i'm i'm paddling as hard as i can you know like grunting screaming groaning and uh, little old ladies are out walking me down the beach, you know, with their bucket of shell in tow. Uh, so eventually <laughs> I just had enough with it and paddled to shore and then basically, you know, drug my boat in uh, knee deep water up, up Sanibel for probably, I don't know, two or three miles at least um, before I could get to the end and, you know, sort of straight shot. Um, straight shot over to the mainland, you know, which is Fort Myers. But that was another uh, you know, long, unnecessary physical exertion, sort of, you know, punishment number three for rookie mistakes. Uh, but eventually made it across, uh, came to another little resort town, um, you know, found a spot with a, uh, a Starbucks and uh, got it was, a, it was a strange restaurant. It was a Mexican restaurant that had a Starbucks inside it. So I got <laughs> a, uh, uh, you know, chicken quesadilla to go and uh, two Dole Espressos. <laughs> that sounds like my life down here in Mexico right now. That's awesome. <laughs> so this was, this. let's see, this was at about... 10 p.m. is when you set up camp, right? And you said you ate, you got a good sleep, and you woke up at about 5.30 a.m.? Right. And how were you feeling at this point when you woke up? Not good. I mean, I, you know, uh, fatigued, you know, but not best sleep I had had in two days. Yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't blame you. It sounds like you had already been through hell <laughs> so far. So you arrived right. at Marco around 3 p.m. And in order to make it to checkpoint two by the cutoff at 10 a.m. the next day, um, what what was the thinking there? Like, what what would you have to do to make this cutoff at checkpoint two? Yes. So the the fourth day was was awesome. The wind was uh, perfect direction. Sailed you know all the way from Lovers Key down to Marco Island, which is like 
60 close about 60 miles um just crushed it got up early in the mornings you know paddle sailed all day good speed good wind everything's right in the world um make it to marco um and at the start, uh, you know, this, the day of the start, I had held, helped this uh, older gentleman set up his boat. And, you know, we talked sailboats and, you know, he needs some help getting his mast up. Anyways, get to Marco, call my shore contact uh, and find out that this uh, race competitor, a guy named Sailor Man, had been lost at sea now for 36 hours. Um, and, you know, I, I know the maritime world. I know... I know what it means to be lost at sea for 36 hours, especially when you're carrying a, uh, you know, an EPIRB on your person in your life jacket. You know, if you don't, if you haven't opened and signaled your EPIRB, that means you're incapacitated when you hit the water. And that means you're not alive. So I had a, a, a sore um, left shoulder, nothing, you know, not an injury, just a, you know, more of a nagging thing. Um, but Marco Island's about 30 miles from checkpoint two, which is Chukalusky. It is a heavily tidal entrance. Um, so you can really only enter the channel to get to Chukalusky on a, a low rising tide. Um, and this is 5 p.m. And I need to be there by 10 a.m. the next morning, 30 miles away. You know, it's roughly a 10 hour paddle. Uh, and you got to make the rising tide, which is. The next rising tide was like at 2 a.m. or 4 a.m. I don't remember exactly, but long story short, I was in Marco after a long 60-mile day, was looking at basically eating dinner and then doing an all-night paddle to barely make the time cutoff in in uh, Chukaluski to then enter a 100-mile section of the race course uh, through Everglades National where there is nothing. No people, no marinas, no dry land. Uh, there is, you know, mud and alligators and the occasional chicky, which is like a little dock you could sleep on, you know. And I, I knew there had also been, you know, several Coast Guard rescues in the same year. And, uh, you know, I had two little girls and a wife that were expecting me to come home and go to work on Monday. So uh, I just decided to throw the towel in right there. Well, I think with all being said that you made a really good choice. I know that there are different reasons that, you know, some of us decide to to quit a race or to, to stop. Um, could be because of, you know, a safety issue or we have a family at home. And I know it's, it's hard not to be stubborn, um, but then sometimes it can be easy. So I think you made a really good decision. And I'm very proud of you for deciding to go back and do it again in 2022. Was this like a, was it an immediate kind of like, yeah, I'm doing this. Or were you like, I'm never doing this again. Or what was your kind of immediate takeaway? Like when you had to, when you knew you had to throw in the towel, like what were you thinking? I, I you know, I was, uh, I have a lot of respect for first responders and, uh, the, the, you know, one of the major decisions for me was I'm not going to ask, you know, some Coast Guard or uh, some other level of first responder to, to risk their own personal safety and risk their probability of coming home to their family because 
you know, I, I want to be a, some kind of hero and, and, and finish this race, you know, uh, on marginal conditions with, you know, uh, marginal personal safety. So for me, it was, it was more of a, um, a decision based on respect for the people that may need to rescue me and for the respect of my fellow racers. If it was such a hard year that there's this many, this many rescues and obviously a death, you know, there, there's probably other people out there that are going to be, uh, in a situation and need, need those resources that, uh, I don't need to occupy, you know, from pride. Mm-hmm. Agreed. hundred percent agreed. And I think that we can all learn a lesson from your experience and your decision and, you know, having respect for others and for yourself and, you know, your family as well. So good for you. That's awesome. Uh, this story is just, I feel like I've learned even, even reading your story and then you telling it, I've learned a lot about this race and it sounds very intimidating. (laughs) I feel like you almost should know how to sail. I mean, do you think that I'm at a disadvantage because I know nothing about sailing? No, I mean, you know, plenty of people finish the race that just paddle. Uh, it's hard though. I mean, there's, there's no doubt about it. And it's, uh, you know, on some level, if you're not, if you're not looking to sail, you don't, you know, if the wind isn't at your back, it doesn't really matter, you know? So in a way, not sailing is a one fewer variable in your, you know, equation of 3D chess you play on the, the Everglades Challenge race course. Well, you heard it firsthand. Sometimes having to pull yourself out of a race is not only a good decision for yourself, but an even better decision for those around you. Stay tuned for part two dropping next week where Brian continues to share his journey on completing the Everglades Challenge. You won't want to miss it. Be sure to check out watertribe.com and get yourself signed up for your next adventure race. Until then, see you on the water.